1: Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Espinosa-Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming back Dr. Karen Wyatt. Karen's a Beth Stelling, author of the book, Seven Lessons for Living from the Dying, which contains stories of patients she cared for as a hospice doctor and the spiritual lessons she learned from them at the end of their lives. Her other books include The Journey from Ego to Soul, Stories from the Dark Night*, and The Tao of Death. Dr. Wyatt also hosts End of Life University podcast, which features conversations with experts who work in all aspects of end of life care. She's widely regarded as a thought leader in the effort to transform the way we care for our dying in the U.S. In addition, she's valued for her application of spiritual principles to illness and healthcare, and teaches that in order to live life fully, we must each overcome our fear of death and embrace the difficulties that life brings us. Welcome, Karen. It's so nice to have you back with me. I I think this might be the third time. Yes, I, I I think so. Thank you, Cheryl. So good to talk with you. Stu, I love our conversation. So I'm very happy to be with here with you today. And having just finished um, the and now I'm I'm blanking the title, which I just read. <laughs> the dark night. Yeah. <laughs> which which you kind of talk about as a as a book. To encourage people to write about their grief, but having just read it, I'd say you teach by doing um, because your writing is to me the heart of the book, and so I really want to thank you for the book. Um, it was it was deeply nourishing to read.
2: Thank you so much. It really, as I I, th- I wrote in the book. It's not a book about grief it's a book that came from within my grief so all the stories and the writings and there are are things i wrote when i was on my own journey of grief in various places and times and so it's almost as if the grief wrote itself in in
1: those words i did appreciate that you said certain things can't be written until they're ready to be written um, as someone who's who's writing about my wife's death and, and my current relationship right now, what, 27, 28 years after that death, I, I don't know if I could have done it sooner. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, what, what you think happens to get us ready to um, really dive into our grief in, at various times? Yeah
2: it's interesting it felt to me I I never quite understood it when I was in the process I always just knew it's not coming to me I can't write this yet I'm not I'm not there yet and but I never knew why and it was only in retrospect later I could see little pieces that I needed to gather, little parts of me that needed to heal, some forgiveness I needed to do, or or a new insight or a new way of looking at something about the past that I needed in order to have the most complete view of what happened, I guess. So it just felt to me like life went on and I just kept learning and growing and I had new experiences and sometimes new grief to deal with, but eventually all those little pieces came together like a jigsaw puzzle in a a way and suddenly the picture was complete and that's when I was able to do the writing. Uh,
1: You know we have some parallels you and I Um, for instance we've we've both done our podcast for 10 years we're both at anniversary time um, and that's been a a, I think uh, I'm sure you'd agree for me it has been a way to continue evolving because when you expose yourself to other people who are also thinking about these things, I learn and grow a lot, right? And I'm assuming you'd say the same. Um, And also um, there was in both of our lives one pivotal grief event that sent us into this work. And uh, of course, not everyone heard our other two, Two interviews. So, can you share some about what catapulted you into the grief world? Yes. And this was
2: um, a tragedy back when I was in my early 30s Um, a new doctor in medical practice, a wife and a mom of two little babies. Um, My father died by suicide. And so, prior to that time, I hadn't really dealt with grief that much. And I, in my medical training, I didn't really learn anything about death and dying or grief, which is amazing to me now as I think about
1: I hear, that. I hear that, which I've heard before from other doctors I've interviewed. It crushes me, right? Because there's nowhere that that there's a greater intersection with grief and loss, maybe.
2: Oh, exactly. I was reading a study that said that 50% of people in a doctor's waiting room are dealing with unresolved grief from the past. Or, and I, I don't even mean to use the word resolved as if it could be resolved, but dealing with old grief issues that they never talk about. And certainly the doctor has no clue that that they should be asked about. So so for me at that time in my life I just was completely devastated by my dad's suicide and really struggled with how to function. Can I even keep being a doctor if I wasn't a good enough doctor to save my own father? Could I how could I ever work with another patient and feel like they should trust me? All those questions came to my mind and it ultimately led me to start volunteering at hospice because somehow the the in, intuition came that maybe I just need to dive in further into death and grief in order to figure this out and to figure out how it's like a sink or swim. I've got to figure out how I can live with this. And once I got into hospice work, that changed everything for me and I, I knew it was really the kind of medicine i was always meant to practice and i ended up shifting from family medicine to hospice and doing that for most of my career so it really was a pivotal event that that changed everything
1: you know i i've often said to people if you feel like if you feel drawn to work in hospice you're a person who should work in hospice <laughs> you're not randomly drawn to do that um and it it it's rare that someone is drawn to that work who has not themselves had a loss but it is the permission you give yourself to dive into it to to really grapple with it and and grieve it so that was a a stroke of genius on your part huh
2: well yeah and it it came to me even without me knowing very much about hospice kind of almost a voice in my head that said call hospice but when i heard that and had that inspiration i knew this this is what i'm this is what i have to do there's no question i have to choose that i do remember thinking what you were saying i have this choice between family medicine or hospice but i realized lots of doctors can do family medicine not very many can do hospice and because i'm called there and i can do it and i love it my heart says that is that's where
1: I need to be. So there's the the traumatic aspect of your father's death, that it was by suicide that's traumatic in in my mind of the the loss of my wife, the death of my wife, I wouldn't call traumatic. It was prepared. It was known. it was already grappled with, you know, there was not trauma involved. So there's that aspect. There's also the suddenness. Uh, my father died suddenly in two thousand and nine and um I was strangely grateful for my previous grief experience because otherwise I couldn't have done in the course of his death what I did you know it definitely I was definitely freed up about really showing up and being with him um yeah. for the- time between, you know, event and unplug, I was able to show up in ways that some other people weren't, right? Yeah. But, but um, it occurs to me, do you imagine that perhaps being with people um, in the process of dying, uh, you know, that they, they know they're dying because they have hospice, and there's that time where they're figuring it all out. I could imagine that that's a time you missed with your father. Yeah. And then you get a sense of what happens for people when they're, because he he was dying. He chose to die, right? Yeah. It had to be a moment before at least. Yeah,
2: it's interesting because I thought of that very thing so many times and it and in a way like having this luxury to sit with people and have time to let to hear what they want to say and what they're thinking about and what they're processing as they're approaching dying and I over and over I asked myself did my dad like, like, does time expand? And as has he was making his choice, did time expand? Did he actually get that time for himself? Was there actually a moment for him to process anything? And did he see his life in review in any way? I've all I've often thought about that and wondered that, but I didn't get to be part of it.
1: Of it, yeah. Um, another thing we have in common is. Um, that the parent we each felt closest to died first and suddenly, (laughs) Uh, the same with my parents. And I I will just confess that um, right when my father died, I thought, why didn't my mother die first? Because it's such a harder relationship. But now that she has now been dead about 10 years, um, I would say, Um, I've made use of that order because that space and time after he died and before she died was an evolution of our relationship. And I got the impression from your book we might have that in common.
2: Yes, very much so. And I think, again, as you were describing, my father's death prepared me for every grief that would come after it simply because I already knew I can live through this, that there's a way I can survive with this and I can carry it. I already had some tools um, to deal with it. But um, yeah, my mom and I had, we had a long road to travel together. And in the end, I was really glad that she lived longer because it just took us a long time to work through our differences and our issues together. But it was so important and and also so beautiful the way it, it played out ultimately.
1: Right now I'm having a recollection of, of my mother was for some reason iffy about listening to the program. My my uh, podcast had started before she died. And for some reason, I got incredibly stubborn about it. And one one day I I had had my show, And I called her and I said, did you listen, mom? And she said, no, oh, I didn't get around to it, this, that. uh." I said, well, what are you doing right now? And (laughs) she said, nothing. I said, I'm going to come over. We'll listen to it together. I made her listen to it, which was such a radical thing for me to do. I mean, I rebelled against her a lot, but I didn't actually require anything of her, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and. It was about my loss as a spouse, and she kept nodding because she was thinking about my father. It was quite a beautiful thing, but it wasn't in keeping with the way I usually was with her. Um, I wonder if you have any memories like that with your mom, where broke through the impediments and the taboos of it
2: exactly, because when I first started writing and um, wrote some of the stories that are in Stories from the Dark Knight that had to deal with my dad, I asked my mom, I had recorded some of them, and I said, would you want to listen to these recordings? And she said, if it has anything to do with your dad's death, no, I do not. I will not listen to that. And I thought, wow, it's been like, we're talking 25 years, you know, or something since my dad died, she still, she won't go there and listen to it. And so I said, okay, I was staying with her for the weekend. I said, okay, that's fine. But the next day she said, I'd like to listen to the recording. She slept on it overnight and we listened to it together like you did. And it was painful, but this amazing thing happened is that she said, I didn't know this was so hard on you. I didn't know the extent of your grief after your dad died. And I realized because we we couldn't talk about it with each other. And um, that opened up uh, everything, a, a lot of discussions after that about the grief each one of us experienced after his death. And it was really powerful.
1: And, you know, obviously there's a little bit of a, a little bit, a lot of a taboo uh, about talking about death, period in a lot of corners, but talking about suicide death, there's a bigger taboo. And there's also um, such pain sometimes that there are no words. And that's an added complication I've noticed with that particular type of loss. And Do you think that was a part of it too? Uh, Just a wordless crushing grief that you couldn't tell each other? definitely
2: definitely i couldn't really talk to anyone or even say the word suicide in the beginning and there was a religious issue too that my mom's religion kind of said suicide is an unforgivable sin and i couldn't i couldn't bear to be told that by anyone i didn't want to hear that so that blocked me from talking to her
1: catholicism
2: or no just a, a evangelical christianity
1: Because um, insult to injury, huh?
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: totally. Contrasting with, I spent a lot of time with uh, Stephen and Andrea Levine when my wife was dying. And um, one of the things they would say about suicide is, um, talk to the person who's died and, and suggest to them that they need to forgive themselves you know quite a quite a polar opposite kind of kind of feeling about it huh that yeah no unforgivable thing
2: exactly exactly so,
1: so um but that affects everybody else too cuz then you have to see this person you love in in the light of unforgivable sin uh, it's very hard to compute that yeah yeah definitely we're going to go to a break and then we'll come back and go from there. Listeners, you can find me at the Good Grief page at Voice America. You can follow me on Instagram, like me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, etc. And to find Karen Wyatt, you can go to End of Life University podcast or eoluniversity.com. Be back soon.
0: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
1: This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to BetterHelp.com slash Good Grief. That's BetterHelp.com slash Good Grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month.
0: Resiliency Within can be heard every Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: This is your host Cheryl Espinosa Jones, and I've been talking with Karen Wyatt about her latest book, "Stories from the Dark Night," and as always in our conversations, much more than that too. Um, so it seems to me that you that you um, agree with this silent um, silence that sometimes happens about any loss, but particularly suicide. But it also seems to me from reading the book like very um, early in your loss, you could write some things down. Um, so can you talk about, because obviously writing is a is a huge tool for you. Uh, can you talk some about what you how you see the difference between being able to put words on paper? and being able to speak because they do seem quite different sometimes.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um I think for me in the beginning my the my words on paper were only for me. I first I wrote in a journal and then I just I just wrote in notebooks, wrote down all whatever came to my mind and stories and there's a vulnerability in speaking in the moment and seeing someone else's reaction to what you're talking about, and I think that was the fear I always had. I couldn't bear to tell someone about my dad's death and see a look on their face, or or even empath their energy, saying uh, judging him, or or feeling oh how awful or what, how shameful or anything, any kind of negativity or judgment, I couldn't bear to receive that back. And at least the paper's neutral. I can write those words down and there's no judgment coming back. So I could explore my feelings and not be challenged by what the other person might be feeling that I'm talking to.
1: That, that, um, Brings up a a, a thought I ha- or a picture I have actually an imagining I have that in grief in profound grief we're walking around without skin, uh, not literally true but emotionally true, and that um, even if you're a resilient person, um, the risk of of somebody pulling your organs out, you know, because you have no skin. Uh, I think that might be what you're talking about, that there's no barrier in between you and the other person's reaction, Um, but later it's not as much so.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And I I think, yeah, it makes sense that during all these years that went by, I was building the skin, you know, I was recreating the skin of protection so that it would feel safe to me even if someone judged my dad or judged me as his daughter. Um, but as as you said, all of that was so raw in the beginning that I couldn't bear the possibility that someone would add additional pain onto what I was already trying to hold.
1: I imagine, too, though, there was a... Uh everyone was not the same, like it was probably easier to tell some people he had died than others. And maybe some people didn't echo that fear uh, in quite the same way as others. Were there any things that you received from other people during that time that were of solace to you?
2: Uh, at the time, I had a good friend who was a psychiatrist. Who had he'd been one of my mentors. I trained with him, and um, he was kind of devastated with me. I, I can say, and uh, he never he didn't try to advise me. He didn't try to say anything. I just saw the look on his face, and I saw the pain that he was in, and that was that was very helpful to me. I didn't have to explain anything to him. He he understood the whole the whole picture, and of all the people in my life, I think he was the person who was the most comforting
1: in that way, the the person outside of my family. Um, What stands out about that is he made absolutely no attempt to change your pain. Um, He just sat in it with you. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, yeah, very true. I mean, he made dinner for us, which was... I really valued that at the time because it was so hard to actually get it together to go grocery shopping and cook a meal. He gave us dinner, but he didn't ex- he didn't ask me to explain anything or tell him anything didn't didn't ask for anything. But like, did that nurturing thing of providing dinner and then just allowing me to be in pain and and reflecting back that he f- felt the pain, he got it, he understood. Mm-hmm.
1: It 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 echoes some things you write about in the book in terms of what you've offered patients um, since your father's death. Uh, I'm thinking of the woman who um, couldn't talk at all, and you decided to spend the time just sitting with her. Um, I think it was dementia, yes? That- mm-hmm. Yes, end-stage dementia dementia, which, of course, I, well, maybe, maybe not, of course, but I think you'll agree. People get so dehumanized in that circumstance, because we we think we are our brains. (laughs) You know, so once somebody's brain isn't functioning, they're not a human being to others. But something told you just sit there. And I wonder if you'd share the story of what what happened after a while of sitting there because it really really moved me
2: yeah it was as part of my job on hospice i was to visit her every other week and just do a brief assessment and write a note so i it was supposed to be a 15 minute visit but i realized i could do my assessment and write a note in 2 minutes and walk out the door but i thought she deserves my 15 minutes even though she can't talk to me she can't tell me anything so that's when i decided i will i'm going to sit here for the whole 15 minutes and give her that dignity and that respect and i started by reading the nurse's notes while i was sitting there i'd read whatever the nurses had written over the previous 2 weeks and then i went on i started talking to her like oh it looks like you had mashed potatoes for dinner last night and you ate all of them i that must be one of your favorite foods i would just just chat and talk. And one day when I was doing my exam, I was listening to her heart. Someone dropped a tray in the hallway and made a loud clattering sound and I saw her react to it. I felt her whole body tense up and saw her react. And that's what t- suddenly connected with me, like she's there, like she's aware, she hears things, she she senses what's happening around her. And I, in the moment I said, it's okay, and I said, someone just dropped a tray and everything's okay, you're safe. I talked to her and I felt her calm down again. And then I knew she knows I'm here and she knows that I'm talking to her. And so I thought this, this is powerful. So I became even more intentional about the things I said to her and one day I saw a picture on the dresser in her room it was a big family picture at like after a wedding or a family reunion or something with people of all ages gathered and I was looking at that picture and I said oh this looks like you in the center um and I said and there are all these children and grandchildren and I was describing it and I said you're wearing the most beautiful blue dress and I see this woman must be your daughter cuz she looks exactly like you and I just was talking to her about the picture, and I looked up, and there were tears streaming down her cheeks, and I, I, I just was so moved to know she. I, I connected with her. We connected over that photo, and. And it was such a a powerful reminder that she's still there inside. Her soul is still there and she needs these conversations. And and I started, I would read notes about your son called last week. He wants to know how you are. He's far away, so he can't visit you, but he cares about you. Even though you don't see him or hear from him, he calls and he loves you. I started reinforcing that and, um, oh, the visit, I mean, that actually became like one of my favorite visits. I started looking forward to going to see Maria each, each time I was meant to go there, though she probably died within a couple of
1: months after that. You know, I was, uh, as I'm sure almost all people were, I had some fears at the, when COVID began, but, um, Pretty quickly, I realized I wasn't afraid of of dying, particularly. I wasn't afraid of death. I was seriously afraid of being isolated, alone, and unloved. <laughs> you know, being in a coma, no family can come in. Um, and I, ever since then, I've sort of prayed that if I should ever be isolated and alone that I not be unloved (laughs) and your story just speaks to that for me so much because I know those things are felt having accompanied my wife for almost a week of coma at the end of her life it was absolutely certain in my mind that she was engaged with what was happening um, although completely unable to do anything about it um, so that's what that makes me think of,
2: yeah, definitely. And I I'm not sure that we even in hospice do the best job of letting families know that also that your loved one can hear you communicate with them, connect with them because uh, because they're they're still here, even if they can't show you that or show you that that they and acknowledge that.
1: And again, sort of the veil is. Uh, that they're, they're probably more in the right brain than the left. Just feeling what's around them uh, is what I imagine. Um, I'm uh, I'm remembering Jill Bolte-Taylor who had a terrible stroke and she said, her left brain was gone, but she felt everything and she knew who was safe and who wasn't, you know, she felt it all. Uh, that it's really an illumination to me that exact experience yeah
2: oh her story was so powerful for me to hear as well
1: and so um with your mom then was there a period where that was also true with her where it was just about being with her and she she was not engaging anymore
2: only at only for the last few hours of her life which was really interesting I went to take care of her uh, when, you know, she she was on hospice. The hospice nurse called and said, it's time you need to be here now because she's declining rapidly and she died within five days and I thought she might live a month, uh, but I came to stay with her and so it was only in the last few hours that she wasn't very uh, conscious or aware and so we were still able to have some interesting interactions during those last those last few days of her life
1: another similarity Karen, that was true of my mother as well which um is boy that was certainly a happy thing for her she, that was the thing she most didn't want it's <laughs> to lose her marbles as she would have put it
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, same with my mom as well. Mm-hmm. I I remember um well, I I in the because of all the stories I've heard, I was hoping that my mom would have some kind of amazing um, paranormal experience at the end of life and that she would see my dad or you know something would happen I was kind of waiting for that and that she would tell me all about it so that was my agenda <laughs> what I was wanting to create out of her dying experience but um she hadn't said anything for a few hours and then she finally I saw her, you know, moving her mouth and getting ready to say something. So I thought, this is it. This is it. She's going to say this profound thing. And I leaned in to listen to her. And she said, I want onion rings. And I was so so disappointed. Like, what <laughs> your last words are I want onion rings like I was I thought I was hoping for something profound but after I processed it and I realized like oh you know when she was a teenager she used to work as a car hop a roller skating car hop at a little drive-in restaurant she always got to eat something after her shift and she loved onion rings and I thought she's probably reliving that past and she wants some onion rings and suddenly, I learned to just cherish that for how, in a way, how beautiful that was. I got to see a little glimpse into what was happening for her. And um, it made onion rings suddenly more profound than I ever thought they could be.
1: (laughs) This is maybe a similar vein, but a little different. Uh, I had walked out of the room the day my mom was dying and my wife was there with with her. And um, all of a sudden she turned to her and said, the ceiling is covered with angels the little buggers oh <laughs> which the little buggers was the funny part because very very christian you would think she'd seen see angels and be so deliriously happy about it but no <laughs> just little buggers <laughs> out of here <laughs> so you never know what's going to happen
2: that's true <laughs>
1: And I don't think it's an accident that she didn't tell me. So there's something about mothers and daughters. I don't know what it is exactly because I haven't died with my daughters there. Right. But um, Mm, that's a, that's an interesting point. It seems from other I've had who've, who've helped in the end of their mother's lives. The profound statements don't always get communicated to the dog.
2: <laughs> That's true. Sometimes it's
1: just onion rings. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes it's onion rings and buggers. <laughs> uh, so I get the impression, well, first of all, I'll, I'll put it this way. I admire how much you write. I'm a very sporadic writer. Or uh, eccentric writer, maybe, and I wonder if you have a practice of writing, or maybe more than one practice of writing, for yourself. What what um, keeps those wheels greased? We won't try- be able to finish because it's almost time for a break. So we'll start and then come back in a few minutes. Well, f- first I
2: just I try to journal. Every day, I'm not. I I definitely don't always do it, but I try to keep a journal because that keeps me in the flow in a way of just kind of emptying out whatever's going through my mind and having a place to record that.
1: So I'll have to see if I can ever in my lifetime. Uh, the The odds aren't high. I'm seventy and I haven't been a daily journal, journaler yet. But you never know. Life has changed, right? Yeah. We'll talk a little more fully about that after the break. And listeners, it's our second break time. So you can go to my brand new website. Right now it'll just say um, get notified when it goes live, but that's happening next week. It's www.goodgriefwithcheryl.com. Uh, or the Good Grief Host page has links to everything. And to find Karen Wyatt, you can go to End of Life University Podcast or EOLUniversity.com. Back soon.
0: Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today.
1: This is Good Grief Host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, Working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you wanna know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. (tries)
2: Abre mi corazón.
0: America Health and Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief.
1: Welcome back. I've been talking with Karen Wyatt about her latest book, Stories from from the Dark, and all things end of life and grief, (laughs) as we do when we get together. And um, before the break, I was um, kind of inviting you to share um, how you keep yourself writing. Um, One of my big um, grief salves, I guess, grief bombs for my soul is singing but I have to have ways to keep myself singing. I'm in a choir. That's why, <laughs> you know, for mm-hmm. instance. Um, and I and I feel that that's true with writing. There has to be a way you keep writing. Uh, some people are driven to it. That's not me. It's not most people, I don't think. So you said you're pretty committed to an almost daily journal, journaling. But I'm curious whether you're the kind of, um, journaler who just writes stream of consciousness for 10 minutes or do you, is there, is it more, uh, standard prose, you know, how how do you actually do your journal?
2: It varies a lot. So it kind of depends. I just, I just sit down now with the page and I never quite know for sure what will come out, but sometimes I just need to ventilate about something that happened and I write it all down and I write out my emotions. Other times I I use it therapeutically because there's something... I'm trying to understand about myself like a, a way I behaved or something I said to someone that I don't feel satisfied with and I want to write about it to understand like where did that come from? Why did I do that? And it's um that kind of reflection is is really helpful. Other times, I just I just come to the page and I'm inspired and there are just words that flow out of me and I just write it down and a lot of times that'll be the beginning of something else that I I need a project. I need to start, or something else. I need to write. So it varies from day to day.
1: But the, it's the permission that that is central to all of that. That whatever it is that's coming out, you just let it happen. Correct. Yeah.
2: Yes, and and I had to deal with my inner critic a long time ago because that was the biggest obstacle to doing any of the writing. Was that voice in my head that always judged everything? And for my journal, it's just in the cheapest composition notebook I can buy. I don't care; nobody will see it. I have there's no judgment. I can just write freely, and uh, it really helped once I got over that that self judgment about it.
1: That's funny because a lot of clients I have, um, I I see people of all ages, obviously, but um, I do have a number of aging clients for various reasons because of the work I do, but also because they've been with me for a while and they're now aging, right? Mm -hmm. But um, they'll say, I've been trying to figure out what to do with my journals because occasionally I like to look back at what was going on, but I actually don't want anyone ever to read them. And it's a real dilemma, right? Because once you're, once you're dead, of course, even if you say, don't read my journals, the person will, could, uh, so it's, I don't know if there's actually an answer for it, but it, it does seem a, a sort of end of life dilemma, right? What do we get rid of um, because we, it's, it's of no use to other people or we don't want it to be? What do we keep? Uh, does that come up for you?
2: Oh, yes. I've thought of that a lot of times in even certain files on my computer, things I started writing and never finished and wondering, should i should I just delete that and get rid of it so that, you know it's not there for someone else? or how would I feel like if my kids came across my computer and read that or read my journal? So definitely I think about it all the time because I have a whole shelf full of now of old journals and thinking, I, at some point, I think I will need to get rid of those myself, but I don't know when when it'll be the right time.
1: We we uh, my my current wife and I just did our trust and all our end of life documents. I'm saying that out loud because you'd think I would have done that a long time ago, but it was actually quite complex because of everything I know. But yay, it's finally done, completed. And I realized there's a p- a piece I'm going to add, which is how to interpret what people, what my daughters find. Mm. Um, You know, just that kind, that's another way around it, maybe. Um, something that says, you know, I moused off in my journal, it wasn't the truth. Or <laughs> I don't know what that might sound like, but it's not the it's perfectly fine to let out your feelings on the page. It's not the ultimate truth, but what if people think it is? That's the, that's the harmful element, isn't it?
2: Exactly. That's a really good idea to kind of leave a disclaimer.
1: Read yeah. these <laughs> <Re-season laughs> at your peril. But <laughs> because as we both know, there's no timestamp on when we're going to die. So that's, I haven't quite gotten around to it yet, but, But I'm not ready to uh, get rid of all those things. I still need them. And I don't want them to be harmed by anything. You know, that's kind of my goal. Does that resonate for you?
2: Oh, yes. Yes, exactly. Because sometimes... What I ventilate about are my closest family members, you know, and and things going on. And I ventilate to help me do a better job of connecting with them, to look at myself and figure myself out and why I'm reacting this way. Um, But in the process, when they read that, I don't know that that would be
1: clear. Yeah. Uh, Hmm. Well, that's inspired me to maybe really write that thing. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) Just in case, right? Yeah, for sure. We know too much. (laughs) So I want to ask you um, at least one other thing, which is, do you think that um, getting to the point where you could dive into your, your dad's death, how he died, the details... I wonder if that has enhanced your sense of relatedness to him now.
2: Definitely, definitely. It was um, 11 years after he died, I went on a little writing retreat, and that's when I had a real breakthrough about being able to really write about him more. And I started then just doing my own research into his into his suicide a little more because I realized there's so many things about him I didn't really know or didn't understand. That's why none of his death didn't make any sense to me because I was missing a lot of pieces. So I started interviewing his sisters, um, who luckily I started then, who they were still with us at that time, and they could tell me stories. And I investigated his military service and started looking at World War II and the division he was in and where they traveled in Europe and what battles they were involved in. And oh my gosh, I, I just learned such valuable information, things I'd never Understood or known about him, and it really, it really helped me understand him and understand his choice better. And in that way, feel like it helped me over any anger I had toward him, and and feel more forgiving toward him and compassionate in a sense. And I remember having a day when I thought in my head, like Dad, I wouldn't have asked you to stay alive one more moment, knowing how much pain you were in, how much pain you were carrying inside. And that was a huge breakthrough when I reached that point.
1: And the other thing that had happened for you to be able to say it that way is that you also were forgiving of yourself, that that you didn't somehow have the responsibility to have made him stay alive. And that if you had known the full story, he would have had your permission. That's what I hear in that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Which is such an interesting thing because, well, and I think you've probably seen this with people grieving. It's really common to feel guilty or to wonder, could I have done something else? What should I have done? And particularly with suicide, and then even more so because I'm a doctor, with training in mental health um that's what was that's what was really weighing me down like I should have known all these things he's the person I should have been able to protect I should have been able to see it coming and um that's that took a lot of of self forgiveness and that was a big part of the journey but as you said recognizing none of us is responsible for someone else's path or the choices that they make we we just we can't be
1: but you're uh, i i think i talk about this every other show at least um the fact that what i notice is that most people's first stop on grief is should have is some kind of self-recrimination and it seems to me like it's a little more graspable that you might have made a mistake than it is that this thing has happened (laughs) you know Because sometimes people will feel guilty when they had absolutely nothing to do or say with it, like the person died of an accident 100 miles away or, you know, I should have had them visiting me. It's not a logical thing, is it, entirely?
2: Yeah that's that's a really good point that in the in this in the midst of this situation where there are no answers and it's so painful to not have an answer that at least blaming yourself is some kind of an answer it's some somewhere of some kind of reason you can you can hang on to in a way even though it's awful and painful it maybe feels better than nothing than having i'd rather be wrong than out of control
1: Uh, yeah yeah that's to think of it because it's so i've thought about it a lot because of all the clients that i sit with and i i can't think of many that haven't gone to guilt first and if it's not an ultimate i should have saved them it's i wasn't wasn't there or i wasn't present enough or it's always something so i think it's a an uh, early rea- reaction. Yeah, uh, that, that makes so much sense. But it takes longer to work your way out of that, I think, with a suicide. Um, Stephen Levine used to say, he's on my mind today, as many days, uh, mm-hmm. to say when uh, when someone suicides, they hang their skeleton in your closet. Mm. Um, wow. And it feels true to me. And I think you're talking about that too, aren't you?
2: Yeah, that's that feels very true. Very true. That's powerful.
1: Yeah, it's, it's stayed with me all this time. So yes, to me as well. So as we near the end of our to- hour together, I hope we'll have more at some point. Mm-hmm. Um it just seems to me, and this is true of everybody that I that I have on the show. But for some reason, uh, particularly with you, there's, um, we don't have to stretch for hope, right? You can have things happen, and there is there is time and space after that and all the amazing work you've done, Karen. I just want to thank you for the work, for the books, and for that message um, that it's doable. So thanks for being here. Oh, thank
2: you. Thanks for your wonderful questions, Cheryl.
1: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm sure we'll talk soon. And to find Karen, you could go to End of Life University Podcast or eoluniversity.com. Next week, I'll have Debbie Shine. Morris to talk about her book, We Used to Dance. Debbie's identical twin sister was born with cerebral palsy while she was born completely healthy. The book tells the story of their loving relationship and the trauma of being forced to put her sister into a care facility at the end of her life. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.